From the Orange County Fire Authority, this is the Pass Along Podcast, where we address firefighter issues from top to bottom, from your helmet down to your boots. Now, here's your host. Hi, and welcome back to the OCFA Pass Along Podcast. My name is Jeff Hughes, and I'm a fire captain currently assigned to risk management as the Cancer Awareness and Prevention Captain. I'm going to be your host for this podcast, actually for this six-part series on our podcast. We're doing something a little different than normal. On October 24th and 25th, the OCFA hosted a behavioral health conference titled Past, Present, and Future. Since then, we've been preparing the presentations from that event so we can make them available to everyone who wasn't able to attend. You can find the video versions of the presentations in our show notes of each podcast episode as well as on Vimeo on the OCFA page. This is the sixth and final podcast in our six-part series and features presentations from OCFA chaplain Devin Chase, OCFA risk manager Jonathan Wilby, and the Counseling Team International's counselor Shauna Hill. So we have the OCFA risk manager here and we also have our chaplain, uh, one of our chaplain representatives as well as um, Shauna from uh, the Counseling Team International. Um, the goal for today, like I had said earlier, was looking where we've come in the previous years and where do we go from here? How do we build on the work that's been done before us? To, because it is 2018, doesn't necessarily mean that because it's today, we're doing it better than yesterday. And, and how can we push that needle forward for the health and safety of our people? So with that, since uh, Captain Bader had talked about the importance of incorporating our risk management, um, I'd like to introduce our risk manager. <laughs> so uh, we have Jonathan Wilby here as our risk manager. He's going to come and kind of lead the, the path for where we got uh, or where we're going with the OCFA. So a little background on me. Um, I've been with the OCFA for 13 years now. I was hired um, as the risk management safety officer. I worked in that position for about eight years, and then I promoted to risk manager about five years ago. And my entire background was safety and health program management. So my education started there. It moved into industrial hygiene. My first two jobs out of college were consulting with manufacturing companies and then working in the aerospace industry. And I just say that because in all the education I had, all the previous jobs I had before getting here, there was nothing on behavioral health. There was absolutely not one even um, sentence in a textbook that even dealt with addressing behavioral health in, in the workforce. Um, and I was at the Public Safety Peer Support Association conference last week, and I, I was doing some self-reflection because there's all this, there's four days of great presentations, and it's really heavy presentations, it's good information, it's a big conference, it's six to 700 people. And I'm listening to some of the presentations and I realized that probably the most exposure I had to behavioral health throughout my life until getting here was growing up the son of a Vietnam vet who was a lieutenant colonel in the army. And I basically had a front row seat to seeing the substance abuse seeing the isolation, the lack of communication, the night terrors, um, just seeing it all. And I didn't really recognize that very much until just recently that that's what I, got, I was witnessing. So um, it's just interesting to think about. Even when I got hired here, you know, I flew in from out of state for a couple interviews. And in the second interview, they had you do a presentation. You had to go and research some type of safety and health issue in the fire service, what the issue was, how you'd address it, do a cost-benefit analysis, do a presentation, and that was the selection interview. And I remember doing all this research, whether it was NFPA stats, whether it was IAFF, whether it was reaching out to the local 3631 and talking to them about this organization, did all this homework, and learned about cardiac, learned about cancer, learned about strains and sprains, and just how many of those occur in the fire service. And I couldn't find anything that talked about behavioral health, and that was 13, 14 years ago. So being at PSPSA last week and seeing 700 people there talk, to talk about public safety, behavioral health, 
seeing that we have 100 people here today, 100 people here tomorrow to talk about fire, behavioral health, it just feels really good that there's starting to be a shift and starting to be more awareness of behavioral health issues in the fire service. And with that, people are going to benefit and it's going to save lives and it's going to be a healthier workforce because of it. So um, what I'm going to do is, is stick with the theme of past, present, and future and just talk about the OCFA program and where we've been, where we're at now, and where we're going. And for me, this all started back in fiscal year 2016-17, when our fire chief at the time, during the strategic plan, he put an objective on there that had to do with decreasing the potential for PTSD in our, our personnel and creating, creating a program to do that. So that um, domain objective was assigned to our assistant chief of organizational development and training, and he shortly after delegated it to me. I'm non-sworn. I'm, you know, fairly new in the fire service. I feel like I'm still learning every single day. So for me to be in that position, to actually be trusted with a program like that and that kind of responsibility, it's something that was an honor for me and it's something that I still don't take lightly. Um, so I had to figure out how to do it. And the first thing I did is put together a joint labor management committee of stakeholders. It included um, someone from our executive team, our, our assistant chief of operations, myself, representatives from our firefighter union, a representative from our chief officers association, and also a representative from our general employees um, union. And this was about September of 2016 that we started to form this group and we started having discussions about the project. And on de December 13th, 2016, this group and then some others like Jeff and also our Benevolent Association, we hopped on a plane to go to Sacramento, California for a joint labor management behavioral health conference that, that some of you may have been at as well. I think it was a CalJAC conference. So we hop on the plane, turn off our phones. We're all motivated, excited to be going to this conference. And about the time we landed, we get to the hotel and all our phones either start ringing, we start getting text messages, basically all of us start getting contacted about something. And what we were getting contacted about is that one of our fire captains, Eric Weave, committed suicide. So it was devastating to this organization as you know, we have 70% of the room that OCFA personnel, we all know how devastating it was to the organization as a whole. And for this group, it was devastating to us as well that we had been put in a position to work on this program and gone to this conference that was going to be the kickoff of, of how we were going to do this. And we were going to network and learn and, um, and create relationships during our time at this conference. And then we get a phone call, phone call about someone that basically could have benefited from this program if it were in place and, um, and that we lost. So we had to decide what to do. We had conversations. Do we go back home? Do we go home and support the organization in our different roles, um, just be there? Do we stay at the conference? Where do we go from here? And we basically all decided this is even more reason we should be at the conference and we should be working on this program and basically committed to each other that we were going to do that and that, that we were going to start doing work. So um, that's what we did. So basically the Joint Labor Management Committee, after that conference, we started going through a process. And the very first thing we did was a needs assessment. We just sat in a room and we all had a, a stack of post-it notes in front of us and we just started writing down everything we thought was needed in a behavioral health program. Write down something, stick it on the, on the table. Peer support on the table, clinicians, CISM, chaplains, benevolent association, training, both in the academy and also ongoing for our employees, taking care of retirees, taking care of families, anything we could think of. And the next thing we did is um, we asked all of the different programs that we had in place to come in and, and spend some time in front of us. There was a representative from each group and tell us about what they did and, and how they did it. We wanted to learn about what we had in place. And we did that for a couple reasons. One, because we wanted to see where the gaps were, but also because we had a lot of good people that were doing really good work and we didn't want to isolate them and make it seem like this group is coming in and we're just going to disregard what they've been doing going back historically 
and um, push some new program that was going to be the new behavioral health program. We wanted their support. We wanted to continue on all the good things that we were doing, and we needed to make them a part of it. So we had the Benevolent Association, the chaplains, the uh, employee assistance program, um, CISM peer support all come in and spend about an hour telling us what they did. And what we learned is, first of all, the employee assistance program wasn't coming anywhere nearing, near meeting our needs. Um, we did a teleconference with them, and they tell us how, as an organization, we're one that utilizes their services more than most. And I remember asking, the, asking them the question, well, what does that mean? What is high utilization? And they said, well, it's about 2% of your employees utilize the services. And I remember thinking for an organization that 90% of our workforce is firefighters and safety personnel, 2% utilization is not utilization. It's not meeting our needs. And then as we reached out to personnel throughout the organization, we realized it wasn't being used. If it was contacted, it was very hard to talk to anyone. When you did talk to someone, they didn't understand the culture. Every time it was someone different that you reached out and actually talked to. They didn't trust that it was going to be confidential. There was just all sorts of problems with it. Um, the second thing we realized about all the other programs is that, like I said, we had really good people doing the right things for the right reasons. And it may have been a little bit siloed. Everyone kind of did their own thing. It didn't really work very much, very well together. But it was good stuff that they were doing. And it wasn't that different than what other fire departments were doing as far as the, the resources they were providing. But it just wasn't enough. And it especially wasn't enough given the new circumstance that we had with having a suicide in our own department. Um, so what we did after that is we started to put together resources. And the very first thing that we knew we needed, we had to make a decision. Do we start putting together all these different resources as, a, as an organization, start creating a clinician panel and creating a panel of, um, of uh, substance abuse facilities that we can use? and pulling all these, all these different resources from different areas and trying to manage a bunch of different contracts and a lot of different resources? Or do we see if there's some type of resource out there that can cover the majority of our needs? So we did that, and the, the organization we found was the Counseling Team International. So one of the first things we did just, just a little over a year ago is we contracted with the Counseling Team International for full-spectrum behavioral health and wellness services. And I'm not going to go into a ton of details as far as what they do for us, because Shauna Hill, one of the clinicians, is here, and she's going to talk about it here in, in a little bit. But the basics of it is it is 100% confidential. You don't have to go through any captain, battalion chief, risk management, anyone within the organization to reach out to them. You dial an 800 number, and it's all between our employee and the counseling team. The services cover our employees, um, their family members living in the same home, retirees, any of them can reach out and utilize the services. We receive billing that has absolutely no names on it. All it is is the number of counseling hours that are utilized during that quarter. And it's being used. Um, a year in, so four quarters of billings that we get, we um, have average about 150 hours of counseling services that our employees are reaching out to on their own. So compared to what the EAP was doing, this is actually meeting the needs and it's being utilized. And the feedback I get from people that actually want to share their experiences and say that either myself or my family member used this service, the feedback is 100% positive and very gracious for the services that were provided to them. So we've also beefed up our peer support team. We've done, just over the last year and a half, we have done two different peer support team recruitments. Um, we started out with about 15 peer support team CISM members. So when we started this process, peer support and CISM were very much lumped together. And it was mostly providing CISM debriefings. Peer support didn't get a lot of um, awareness or recognition throughout the organization. So we've done recruitments for both peer support and CISM separately. We do training for peer support 
And then if the peer supporters want to progress into CISM, they can do that in the next training. But we've gone from about 15 peer support team members to 70 after we do the training in November for the, for the latest recruitment. So we have made a mo much more robust team. And these are all amazing people as far as the reason they've decided that they want to participate in peer support, their understanding of confidentiality, their um, desire just to be there to support their, their peers and be there for their coworkers. And they have huge hearts. And um, even beyond that, they just want to be involved in the behavioral health program, even outside of peer support. They're bringing things to me constantly to say, can we do this? What about this? Have you thought about that? So um, as far as the, the peer support and just making that more, more robust, we're in a much better place. We just did a CISM team recruitment. We're about to add about 10 more CISM team members. So we'll have 25 trained CISM team members here in the future. And we've also increased our behavioral health training. So right now, we do training in the Firefighter Academy, Captain's Academy, Battalion Chief Academy, and um, Dispatcher Academy. We're doing four hours of behavioral health training in the Firefighter Academy. And the way it works is the clinician goes in the room, the cadre leave, and it's just the clinician and the cadets. And the reason is, is we make it a safe space for the cadets to learn, to share, they're not being evaluated, and to learn about um, how to take care of themselves throughout their career. Battalion Chief Academy and Captain's Academy, we're doing two hours of behavioral health training in each of those academies as well. One of the other things that I want to talk about that we're doing is um, we started doing significant other survival courses. And we do these on, we're shooting for quarterly. It's about every six months right now, but in, in the future, we're trying to get these done quarterly. And what this class is, is really to teach the spouse of our personnel about the fire service and um, let them understand the culture of the fire service, what it is that their spouse does, what they see, some of the things they don't under, understand about them, how they, they function. So when you get off the job, you've been on shift for 48 hours, you've been up and down, had all these adrenaline spikes, and you show up and you don't want to just re-engage with the family right away. It's not because you're being a, an ass. It's not because you don't love them. It's nothing to do with the wife, with the kids, any of that. It's a physiological function that your body just has to go through a process to come down from that. And it's, it's teaching them some things like that so that they understand more and hopefully leads to healthier relationships. And um, some of the feedback I've got on that is one of our union members said, you know what, I wish we would have gone, my spouse would have gone to this class 25 years ago because I guarantee there would have been less ups and downs in our relationship over the years. And the feedback we get from the spouses is very good as well as far as is how they feel about the class. So it's, it's something that um, we hope just builds to stronger support systems and healthy relationships. So as far as what's next, our fire chief this morning, Chief Fennessy, talked about uh, company officer training. We're not only planning company officer training, we're planning full-blown organizational training on behavioral health in the first um, six months of next year. So we do tag sessions around here, rotate people, all our crews through some, some form of training on our training grounds. And one of those sessions is going to be behavioral health training. Uh, we're also working on normalizing the CISM process right now. We've added on the, um, on the daily activity log a CISM duty sheet just to make it easier for CISM to be initiated. And we're trying to standardize it and make it just a normal thing that you go to a bad call and you think, okay, when's our debriefing? And also have the debriefings done by culturally competent clinicians, chaplains, and peer support team members. So it's an actually a good process. We're going to develop our peer support team further so that they can be more proactive in supporting the members. Uh, we're building a network of vetted, culturally competent behavioral health resources. So we're getting out and, and actually visiting some of these different PTSD retreats. Uh, substance abuse centers, so that we actually have a network that we visited and we feel 100% comfortable sending our members to. Uh, we're increasing retiree aware awareness of the services available to them and their families. Our retirees right now don't know that they're part of this contract, so we're going to put together mechanisms to reach out to them 
so that they know they also have access to this as well, and they will throughout their retirement. And then we're expanding behavioral health and wellness services to our staff members. When we put this contract in place with the counseling team, it was specifically for operations, ECC, and our peer support team members. So we're transitioning our staff members away from the EAP program that we were using as well, because the feedback even with them is terrible. And we're going to transition them to the counseling team international as well. So I'll be the, I'll be the first to say that I think we've made a lot of progress over the last year, year and a half, but this is still the beginning. This is really the infancy stage of what we're putting together. And um, we have a lot of work to do, but we're getting to be in a good place. And I think that, um, that it's only going to get better. All right, next I'm going to hand it over to Devin Chase, and Devin's going to talk about the chaplain program. So I'm Devin Chase, and uh, I'm one of the chaplains here at Orange County Fire. And just briefly about myself, uh, I uh, spent 33 years as a cop, retired uh, from the Torrance Police Department, and after working as a cop for 33 years, uh, would have never guessed I'd become a chaplain, but here I am. And I am here uh, because being a first responder, I've seen firsthand all the trauma that we see. And so I am a believer in CISM. Uh, I'm a believer in uh, behavioral health and wellness. And so that's why I'm here. And that's why I volunteer to, uh, to serve what I have truly uh, come to know as a great organization. So currently we have uh, 10, now 11 spots. Uh, the way Orange County breaks our chaplain program down is each chaplain takes a battalion. I'm Battalion 8's chaplain. And we are uh, currently one vacancy in Battalion 2. And they are going to also bring a chaplain in uh, here for headquarters as well, because there's unique uh, issues that go on in the in headquarters and that area as well. Uh, so a couple things about chaplaincy. I, I was cracking up because uh, multiple times speakers have said there's a stigma. There's a big stigma with chaplains, okay? <laughs> um, I think our stigma beats mental health stigmas because people are like, oh, man, if I talk to this guy, uh, he's going to hit me over the head with a Bible or talk to me all the time about God. And that is obviously one aspect of what we do. But I just want to give you a quick overview of what we really do because I can guarantee you this, none of the chaplains is going to hit you over the head with a Bible. Um, we're available 24-7, 365. We uh, carry pagers and department phones. Uh, I'll tell you a couple times how you can get a hold of us, but you can get a hold of us anytime. Uh, if you called at 3 o'clock in the morning because you need a chaplain, I can tell you this, every single one of us would happily pick up the phone and we'll be there as quick as we can. Uh, we're here to serve you. Uh, I, I can't stress that enough. I do this because I... Uh, served for many years, and I'm not done serving yet. So I'm here to serve you. And again, when I speak and I use the word I, I apologize because any one of us sitting up here talking to you would use that term as well. Uh, we are here to serve you. Um, we're part of the OCFA wellness uh, continuum. Uh, we work with peer support. We work with uh, the Counseling Team International. Uh, and that is our primary focus. But we're also here to serve the community. Uh, oftentimes you end up on a scene and there is trauma at the scene and you don't have the time to sit there and deal with the family members. And so we're available to come out and handle that aspect of the, of the situation as well. Uh, so again, on a global view, it was mentioned earlier, we are privileged confidential uh, resource. And what I mean by privileged is that inside the department, you have your peer support. Now, peer support is great at being conf confidential, 
But the law, in certain circumstances, can force that peer to say something. On the other hand, all chaplains are clergy. And so we carry the clergy protection. And what that means is that with a few exceptions, like immediate threat to life and, and some abuse things and stuff like that, uh, I can be on the stand. You can bring a lawyer in. You can put me under oath, put me on the stand and say, tell us what you're doing. And I get to look at them and say, no. And I'm covered by the law. Uh, outside the department, you have the Counseling Team International, which is also privileged. Um, some of the stations have interactions with a group called TIP, which is a really good organization here in Orange County. Uh, TIP is confidential. They are not privileged. So just the difference between privileged and confidential is a good thing to know about. Uh, I like what the captain uh, said earlier. Um, I am not even going to tell the department or anyone else that I even had a conversation with you. It's going to be completely confidential. So if you contact me and you say, hey, I'm having a problem. I'm having a problem with substance abuse. I'm having a problem with this or that. I don't even tell anybody that I talk to you. It's that confidential. Uh, part of the chaplain role is to bring calm to chaos. We offer a safe place for uh, first responders. And again, as a first responder my whole life, I can tell you that uh, knowing the chaplain was there and at times myself talking to the chaplain, uh, it was a good place. Uh, there was a talk, um, people have mentioned earlier about how important a safe spot is. Chaplains are that safe spot. Uh, we offer help to first responders. We also help uh, the community and we will help family members of first responders. Anytime there's trauma, uh, we're involved. And I'll back up just a second, uh, our training. We are all clergy, so we have counseling, obviously, in our background. But in order to work here at OCFA, we also have critical incident stress management training. Uh, each one of us has different levels of that. Uh, myself, I'm, uh, I was adding my numbers up the other day in preparation to come talk to you guys. And without even realizing it, I'm coming up on 300 hours of uh, training just in, in critical incident stress management. So we want to be able to be there for crisis intervention. And, and that's part of what we do. So our primary mission is to OCFA personnel and their families. Secondarily, we're available to the community. And uh, you ask us to serve, we'll serve. Uh, how do we do this? Well, we do fire station visits. Uh, some of us do more than others. Uh, I'm uh, blessed because I, for the most part, I'm retired. I still do some law enforcement teaching. Uh, but for the most part, I'm retired. And so I can dedicate whole days to come and, and hang out at the fire station. And that's my MO. I like to get there around 7.38 in the morning. And I'll finally leave around 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night when you guys are tired of me. Um, we will do benedictions and invocations uh, at functions. Like I got to lead off this morning with a prayer. Um, we will give confidential counseling to any OCFA employee or their family. And the other thing that we're good at is we know within our bounds what, what we can counsel on and when we need to refer out. And we're, we're, as I said, we work very closely with Counseling Team International and uh, don't hesitate to refer out when it's beyond what we can do. Uh, we also do uh, hospital visits. We do home visits. Uh, I've uh, gone and visited OCFA employees who are getting ready for surgery at the hospital, hung out with them just before they went into surgery to go under the knife and just been there to hang out. Uh, if they want prayer, I'll pray. If they don't, I still pray. I just don't pray out loud. <laughs> uh, we represent OCFA at public events. We serve as a liaison between other spiritual uh, groups within the community. And this is what I really love. I love doing weddings, um, especially for OCFA people. Um, 
Funerals, not so much, but we do those as well. Uh, again, we are available 24-7. Uh, I want to stress that because uh, I've even had interactions recently with some fire captains and personnel who are like, yeah, but we'd feel really bad if we called you. No, don't feel bad. If you need us, you call us. That's why we do what we do. Um, we're available to assist citizens if, uh, if that's something that is needed. Uh, we definitely, if there was a mass casualty event or a disaster, uh, we're, we're there for that, we're down for that. And if there was ever to be, uh, hopefully not, but a, uh, a serious injury or, or death to OCFA employee or their family member, we would absolutely respond to that. Uh, we, as I said, are trained in critical incident debriefings, and so we can, we can lead those if necessary. We can lead defusings or just sitting around the firehouse table uh, talking and talking things out. Uh, on scene, we can provide any type of assistance and happily do that. Uh, we can do death notifications. I know that's not anything that uh, I enjoy doing, but I've done more than I can count, and that's something that just comes within our parameter of what we do. Um, so the question I'll leave you with is this. Why would I call a chaplain? I know nobody's asked you guys questions yet, but I'm kind of that guy. So why would you call a chaplain? A death in the family. If you're going to get married, here's the thing. When would you call a chaplain? Anytime you think that somebody needs care, that you don't have the time, and I'm not saying time because you just don't have the time, I'm talking you have more calls to run, you have more stuff to do, you call a chaplain. Here's the other time. As I spent my career uh, rolling from trauma to trauma to trauma, uh, I, like you, sucked it up and said, you know what, I don't need to talk to anybody. But I'm thankful, in fact, I'm thankful to God that I had some really good partners, really good partners, who quite honestly, um, I can say, probably saved my life because they saw that that call affected me. And so what they did is they said, I want some help for me. They said they were getting help for them, but who were they really getting help for? They were really getting help for me. And so what I would encourage you to do is, as you're rolling trauma to trauma to trauma, and you're watching your buddies, you're paying attention, and you see one of your buddies who's sitting there going, you know what, they're just not reacting the way that they normally would, be that person, be that partner who says, you know what, I want to call a chaplain out for me. When in reality, who are you calling the chaplain out for? You're calling the chaplain out for them. But we won't call the chaplain out for each other, so call the chaplain out for your buddy, but call him out for you. Does that make sense? Okay. How do you call a chaplain? Well, as I said, I flashed my number up there pretty quick, but the EOC has all our numbers. We, um, they can get a hold of any of us at any time, and so... Uh, and of course, if you want my number, I'll be around. I got cards. But uh, employee wellness is huge. And I did 33 years. I made a nice retirement. I've got a nice retirement. My goal for all first responders is that you reach your retirement. And we don't all get out without some scars. We've all got them. But I want you guys to enjoy healthy, happy retirements. And that's why I volunteer for this position. So, so be well. Okay, before I introduce Shauna, one thing I forgot is a quick plug for the FireStrong website. Our local 3631 firefighter union, subscribe to the FireStrong website. There's an OCFA page on there. Um, I'm sure John Clones probably sent all of you um, OCFA personnel logins and passwords, but you can reach out to John or you can reach out to myself if you don't have it and we'll get it to you. But basically, all these different resources that I talked about and that Shauna's going to talk about can all be um, 
their, their tiles and information on that Firestrong website. So check it out if you haven't. And next I want to introduce Shauna Hill. She is one of the clinicians from the Counseling Team International. And we're really lucky in Orange County and throughout the area from LA all the way up to San Diego that we have the Counseling Team International that is a robust organization. All they do is work with police and fire and they can provide us with the majority of resources that, that we need. Shauna has been completely embedded in our organization since we signed the contract with them. She's done peer support team training. She's done academy trainings. She um, has counseled our members. She has just been around here a lot. So very thankful for Shauna, and here she is. I'm going to let you know this whole conference today um, was about the past, present, future. So I'm going to share a little about my past, present, future so you could understand why I am so passionate about this and why this, this touches here. Um, I, I, like many of you, I'm sure you're not the first generation of first responders. Um, I come from a father who decided to leave Vietnam and go into law enforcement for over 30 years. He was my hero, so naturally, I wanted to be a cop, right? Well, that generation, my dad said, I'm colorful, so if I don't show up tomorrow, that means I got fired. So he's like, hell no, you're not going to be a cop. Nobody likes cops. I'm like, Dad, I'm, I can't sit, in a, can't sit in an office. Nope, you're not doing it. You do it, I kick you out. I was like, well, that's not good. Okay, he's like, be a firefighter. Everyone likes firefighters. I was like, I was an athlete. Uh, and I said, okay, that sounds fun. 16, 17 at the time, became a little explorer. I washed all those engines and went to Mount Sac, got my AS degree in fire science, got my degree in fire science, and uh, went through Mount Sac's class 16, top 10 in my class. And I graduated at 20 in uh, March. July, I turned 21. I realized, hey, I'm 21. I could do what I want. So I told my dad, oh, by the way, I don't want to do that fire thing anymore. I am going to be a cop. Okay. Well, you're just kicked out of my house. So I got kicked out. Went to live at Grandma's. July turned 21. By September 1st, I put myself at the police academy. And I got picked up while I was in the police academy, and I spent the next 14 years in law enforcement. During that journey, I went to two academies, and within one year, learned a lot of stuff. I held my little rope everywhere. I had my rope in my purse, in my car, did all that, did my dry fire. But no one talked about mental health. There, that wasn't even a topic in our academies. Nothing was talked about that. They pinned my badge, my dad pinned my badge on my chest. Guess what? No one told me about that box they stuck in my head, that trauma box. He sure as hell didn't tell me about it. Nobody told me about it. No one taught me about that trauma box. But it was okay, because I thought I was excited. You know, when I got my EMT cert, my first call at 19, they thought I was like, oh, you want to see what this is all about? And I walked into a room. My first trauma was this guy cut from here to here and this intestine sitting out on his lap. And they thought it was cool. So I was like, okay, this is cool. Like, this is not a desk job. But that was my introduction to it. And we, we laughed about it. And from there, I saw trauma for the next 14 years. But it became like bagging groceries. It was no big deal. You just shut it off, right? Because we didn't talk about it. And then I was okay with it. 29, um, went to bed a, a wife, woke up a widow with two kids. Okay, unexpected. Do you think my chief pulled me in and said, hey, I'm going to give you some time off? Went to Montana, buried my husband, came back to work seven days later in a patrol car with a trainee in my car. Within that week, my hair started falling out. And I was like, that's weird. No one told me that. This is kind of what happens. And within that next week, I was in the hospital for two weeks with full-blown pneumonia. Chest is full and that filled up. Still nobody. Peer support? That, I didn't even know that word. I didn't even know. Nobody knew it. Peer, there was no such thing as peer support in the past, in the 90s. But what happened when my husband died, that next morning, I opened my door to get my newspaper, because I read the newspaper still at that time. We didn't have Google and AOL. Open up, and there sat my coffee that I used to get every day before shift, and two hot cocos, and a sea of groceries, pre-made stuff, so I didn't have to cook. My team, all men, didn't know how to talk to me. Well, first, I'm a girl, right? And second, what the hell do we say? She just lost her husband. We don't do that touchy-feely. Feelings is only F word you don't like, right? 
So, but guess what? I didn't care. First, I got my cup of coffee, because I am a beast without coffee. And second, like, that's all I need. Who said food? The last one that we talked about. Food is everything. I didn't have to think about packing my girls' lunches. Was I just, I got my coffee, and I knew they drove all the way from Los Angeles here to where I lived and dropped a sea of groceries off. The next day, the next team uh, had delivered pizza to my, office, or to my house and wrote, Love Team 2. That's all I needed. I didn't need to, someone to touch, hug, feel. Although my captain and lieutenant came out, my lieutenant hugged me. Captain shook my hand. That night, I was just telling the guys at lunch today, that night that lieutenant called me and said, I need to apologize to you. Okay, what, what happened? I hugged you. What, it's like the captain said that was inappropriate. I shouldn't have hugged you. Mind you, my husband had died within 48 hours, and he was apologizing for hugging me. That's the generation. That's the generation that was there. That was the past. Why am I excited? Because the language is changing, and I get to be a part of it. And if you tell me, Shauna, you ain't going to change the language, okay. Well, I'm going to do it. I'm going to help, and it's going to be these generations are falling. I'm excited because the language needs to get changed, okay? The language needs to get changed. I checked out of life. I got deep in law enforcement, did undercover for the last eight years of my life, and not until my kid was barfing in the, in the toilet, and I held her hair, and she's like, Mommy, stay. I'm like, no, the nanny's coming. We have an assignment tonight. Did I realize, what am I doing? Who's, I'm not even raising my kids. I checked out life because I don't want to deal with my life. I want to deal with everybody else's problems, right? So I had an aha moment why she's throwing up in the toilet. And within that week, I went to the chief. I said, it's time for me to raise my babies. So I raised my babies. But I'm not the smartest one. I still married a cop. He's in Santa, Santa Ana, best friend, second chance at life. But I'm, so I'm doing this now. So I was working with my pre-doc was uh, with um, veterans that are coming home and reintegrating to the civilian population. And Nancy from TCTI knew my history and said, will you come on board and work in Orange County, three miles from where I work? That was a no-brainer. This is my language. This is all I know. So I suggest, and I came on board, and I've been here for the last three years. So I'm here to kind of preach about the language needs to get it needs to change. We need to learn that new language and what that looks like, okay? And that language is, it's, it's, it's tactical language for the emotions. If you don't, it's not normal to see dead bodies all the time, to see dead babies, to do CPR on people. I haven't seen a dead body for seven years. I didn't realize how not normal that is. Like, no. Now I look, I'm like, I don't go deal. Seen too much. It's not normal. Okay. But it became like, like we say, bagging groceries. It's just a, we just do it, and then as we're doing it and picking up stuff and doing stuff, brains on the wall from a suicide, we're figuring out what we're having for dinner, what we're cooking, where we're going. Okay? So with that language, so when the counseling team was brought in by uh, OCFA, uh, Jonathan and I started telling like, how do we get these guys to come? And, and just let them know, like, this has to change. And I really feel these new generations, call them touchy-feely, call them what you want. It is changing, okay? Because they've learned by either their fathers, their grandfathers who were in this generation, or they're seen by their mentors that they've struggled in ways. At one point last year, I had more retirees in my office than I had active duty, fire and police. Because they came from that generation where we don't do emotions. The academies taught you how to shut emotion off, right? Vulnerability gets you what? Killed. But no one taught them how to check in on emotions on their days off. So if they're doing 24s, 48s, 72s, whatever, they're gone for three days. They ain't doing emotions for three days, and they have to check in for a quick 24 before they go back. Do you think they're even, no one's trained them. So they keep those emotions shut off at home. And where does that get you at home? It's going to get your clothes on the front porch, right? It's going to be a disconnection. The intimacy is not going to be the same. But whose fault is that? It's not my first responders, because no one trained you how to do emotions. And that's where Jonathan and I collaborate. We're like, we've got to teach these guys and girls how to do emotions. We teach them how not to feel. But if they're not balanced in their home life, it's going to affect their work life.
It's this vicious circle. So that's we came in the counseling team. So this is this is what we had offered. So for my Orange County guys, and I, I see some of my other departments here, um, we do the critical incident stress debriefings. We come in and do all that stuff, and we also do their individual training, and we do uh, their individual work. Okay, their therapy work. You guys have five offices here in Orange County. We have Rancho Santa Margarita, Anaheim Hills, Newport, Huntington, and I'm in Brea. Okay, um, and we're here. We know this culture. We know this language. A lot of us are married to first responders, either fire, police, or we've worked trauma for 20 years. Okay, that's just what we do. This is our language. You're not going to tell us anything that's not going to shock us. Okay. We've heard every fetish, we've heard every addiction, we've heard every infidelity, we've heard it all, okay? So know that also it is confidential. You do not have to ask for anybody's permission to come to the counseling team. You can be the chief, battalion chief, or you can be the guy that has one day on. It doesn't matter. Again, like Jonathan said, we bill by, we bill by the hour. Okay. There are four times that we do have to break confidentiality. That's you tell me there's ongoing elder abuse, ongoing child abuse. You tell me you have suicidal behaviors. The thoughts are not reportable. But if you tell me you went to Home Depot, you bought some rope, and you're weight testing it from some rafters at home, we're going to have a come to Jesus talk. Okay. Or you have a future victim. So if you tell me you plan on not someone that's already buried underneath your pool in your backyard, but if you tell me you're going to go out and bury an ex underneath your pool, that's another come to Jesus talk. If I have to break confidentiality or any of our clinicians, we'd also, we would always encourage you to make that phone call and report it. If not, personally, everyone handles it different, I would make the, the phone call in front of you and report it so you know exactly what's being reported. There's no secrets. Okay. Other than that, this is your safe place. You've got to do emotions. And I would say the majority of the stuff that comes through my office, I'm don't think that you're not you can't come into these offices because you don't have PTSD or, you know, these calls really haven't got to me. But I'm struggling in my marriage. I'm struggling with my son. I'm struggling with my daughter. That will eventually affect your work life. Okay? So come and get that balance. It doesn't, you don't have to tell me your deep, dark daddy issues. We can go there. Okay? But it's maintenance, okay? It's maintenance. It's preventative maintenance. Come in and say, hey, I'm not sleeping right. My stomach's not right. I'm getting these nightmares. But I'm irritable. I'm isolating. Depression looks a lot different with first responders than your average civilian. But also know that you see more trauma in one day than the average civilian sees in a lifetime. A lifetime you see it in one day. So preventive maintenance, that box I told you about, that they don't tell you when you pin the badge on your head, that fills up. Come clean it out so you're not in my office when you retire. I don't want you in my office when you retire. I want you to enjoy that 3% at 50, 55, 75, whatever it's up to now. I want you to enjoy the retirement. Clean that box out. Preventive maintenance. We'll talk about self-care, coping skills. Okay. Don't let it fill up until it bursts at the seams. Because when it decides to go, and you've filled it as much as you can, and it pops, you're not in control at that point. Who knows when it's going to pop? It's going to pop on a call. It's going to pop in front of your wife. It's going to pop in front of your kid. And God knows what's going to happen when that thing blows. Okay? So come in for that pre preventive maintenance. Come in for that balance. Let us teach you and train you how to do emotions, how to check in emotionally. Because vulnerability is absolute strength, okay? If you know the power of vulnerability, but our culture teaches vulnerability kills, okay? So there's a thing. And learning the language. If I said, a lot of guys we've talked about this, is you're running a marathon. If I saw you running a marathon in flip-flops, what would you think of somebody? You're a good dumbass, right? Like, what are you doing? You're going you're gonna to have shin splints. You're going to have hurting. It's going to be a hot mess after that marathon. What are we do? If I say, when's the last time you changed your hose out on your rig in like 30 years? When's the last time you got boots? 30 years. That's now how I see a clinician. I said, when's the last time you cleaned your head out? That trauma box. 20 years. 
You're like, I want the language to change like you put it on your partner. 20, what? No, no. You've been running a marathon every day. Go get that box cleaned out. Call him out. If he was walking around with a broken ankle, would you still let him get on the rig? Would you? You call your partner out, like, you get that checked. We're going to the ER. But guess what? We got to hide this. Nobody can see this. So I challenge you, what? But, you know, I can see this, like this, and all this stuff. So we make this all look pretty, right? But I asked you, and I challenge you, if I were to take this muscle, right, or brain's a muscle, if I were to take this muscle and put it on your stomach, what would that look like? Would you even be able to put your seatbelt on? Seriously, what would that look like? Okay. <laughs> so clean that out. That is a muscle. Work it. Emotionally be intelligent. This is your strongest tool, your strongest muscle. This operates everything. All the equipment, all those rigs you drive, your marriage, your parenting, this drives the driving force of everything. If this isn't right, and I know there are people in here that know too while you're sitting there, don't, please don't raise your hand, no self-disclosure. But when this isn't right, other things fall apart in your lives. Marriages, relationships with friends, family, your work. Are you that angry, disgruntled employee? Okay. Are you constantly bickering on calls, not treating patients appropriately? That's how the ripple effect of not cleaning this out. Anxiety, sweating when you're not doing anything, panic attacks, irritability, overeating, undereating. Okay. So let us educate you on that language. And that's what it's here for. Okay. So, but we run from Santa Barbara. I know we have a couple from up north. From Santa Barbara to San Diego, we have offices in all those within five counties. Okay, and there's clinicians all throughout those counties. We have about 200 contracts, um, and we're here. If you don't have a contract with us, if something happened, just call us. Okay, you don't have to, but that service is available. It's here. We're here, and we want to. We have one right here um, in Orange County. It's called Simple Recovery. We have clinicians on the board that it's a first responder track. Okay, so yes, you will be with first responders. You're, I promise you won't be with a patient that you just arrested or just, let's just say, transported. Okay, it is a first responder, and we have first responder clinicians and first responders on the board that are recovering. Okay, that know the ends out what worked and what didn't work in their recovery. Okay, Anaheim Fire has a, they asked a firefighter from Anaheim Fire to run their AA. So we, they have closed AA means. You guys know. There are closed AA means, they're not, they're not made available out to the public, that are just for first responders. So if you want that call, I actually, so you don't have to call if you don't, there's information over there for simple recovery and for your guys' OC and Inland Empire closed meetings for first responder AA meetings, okay? That is available to you. We have connections, like what Jonathan said, with um, retreats for first responders that deal with PTSD. There are resources out there. Just call and ask. You don't even have to give us your name. Say, I'm a firefighter that's looking into this or that. Okay. But these are here for you. Please work on, I encourage you, I challenge you to start changing the language. Okay. At the end of the day, this is a family, but this is a badge and this is a number. Okay. And my guys struggle because they show up to the fire station, retired because nothing filled their ego other than that badge. This became their absolute identity. And when they lost that, they walked in a firefighter and they walked out a civilian. They don't get to respond to not one single call again. That's a hard pill to swallow. And they dedicate their life to the service. Therefore, guess what? A lot of their family starved. And they went home and they retired to a wife who just said, oh, she'll always be there, she'll always be there. And then it came to the point where what? Oh, now it's just cheaper to keep her. And now they're at 50, they haven't established that really good healthy marriage, and they're retired and they're sitting and sleeping next to someone and spending 24-7 with someone that they don't even know anymore, that has now established their own life because you were never home. That is hard. And they find themselves coming back to the station, sitting around that table, and that ego comes back. That feeling comes back. 
And then you guys get a call, you leave, and guess what? You pull around, and their truck is still there. You're like, oh, man, he's never going to leave, right? And he's sitting there like with his dog, tail wagging, like wants, he wants that connection because that's the only connection he or she has created. And I want you to be able to go back with your Hawaiian shirt on and your flip-flops and visit for about 20 minutes and be like, I got to go, I got a Harley ride. Or we get on a plane. I want you to go and visit your brothers and sisters, but I want you to leave because you've got bigger and better things to do now that you're retired. Okay? But that's part of changing the language now. Now, front load yourselves now with learning how to clean that box out, how to connect in the home life, how to create that balance, and how to create self-care as a first responder because you guys are horrible. I'm horrible at it too, but you guys are just as horrible. 10 to, 12 se- yeah. 10 to 12 sessions per year, per issue, per person. So you want to go, tell me about your stuff, but then you want to go wife, those are another additional 10 sessions to another therapist. Every January 1st, it starts over. So a, a very big, lovely, dysfunctional family can go through many, many sessions, and that's okay. The messier, the better. I love it. Every contract is different. It's what the department's willing to pay for, what they're willing to encompass in it. Some just include the first responders and not the families. Couples are my favorite. Yes, I love doing the love languages and teaching guys how to be married to one of you crazies. Okay? So, it's, no, it is, and I can only say it because I'm, you don't want to get in this head. So, um, yes, you can do, so you can do, if you have some work stuff that you don't want to expose your spouse to, that you just want to clean out that box, and you necessarily not want your wife there to clean that box there to clean the box out, you can go have your own 10 to 12 sessions for preventive maintenance. I call it clean the box out. Then you and your wife are struggling with something momentarily in the relationship or that's been there for 10 years and you finally figured out we need help, that's 10 to 12 sessions. And then maybe she's dealing with depression or anxiety and she needs her own individual work with something, she's going to get her own sessions. So do you see how you can use multiple sessions within a family? And that, a lot of times, that's what does happen. We have a first responder cleaning out their box doing maintenance work and then doing family stuff on the side. The future is going to, we have some departments. I think Corona PD is one. Are you, I don't know if you guys are at, but no, I know, but I know you're fire. But I think we, the PD, I think Corona Fire, well, tell me, they mandate now, the chief mandates that they come in once a year. They don't care. Chief doesn't want to know what's, I don't know. I'm, I don't want to hear. I don't want to know what's being said. I just want your name checked off list. Once a year, you got to clean your head out. Just like once a year, you got to go get new boots. You got to switch out whatever. You go just meet with somebody, clinician, for one hour so your name's checked off the box. It's hard to you guys to, to go and be so vulnerable. And my, and my guys and girls come in. They don't even know where to start. They, sit, they ask me where to sit. I'm like, this is an interview. I have couches, I have chairs, sit wherever you want. And then they say, I don't know where to start. But I don't know how this works. That's it. They just don't know. And that's okay. We'll start off that way. Because it usually takes me one or two sessions to get you to realize this tool. I swear I don't have cameras. I don't have recorders. This is your safe place. Thank you. Thanks. Nice job. The really important thing that we want to take from this point is where do we go from here? I think like Captain Bader said from uh, Coral Springs, collaboration really has a big part in where we need to go in the future. Um, I'm personally working with some of the good folks down in San Diego, uh, LA area chiefs organizations and trying to create that same model that's created in South Florida, or in Florida, the state. Because this collaboration really is where we need to go, just on this, not just on this issue, on all of the pillars of health and safety issues that are out there for the fire service. As far as behavioral health goes, this is the point where we need to look at the past and where we're dealing with these issues in the present and where do we take it in the future. I'm very proud of my organization. It's not our, it's our organization, but I have some ownership here. The leadership that's often required to take care of our people is not based on your rank. Leadership is not rank-based. The newest guy in our department can display leadership by looking out for the people who we work next to. 
The fire family is not dead, and I've heard that as a punchline and nothing pisses me off more. The fire family is real. We have to look out for our people. We have to be able to be honest with ourselves if we're doing it right, or in our opinions, we're not doing it right. Now, because it's 2018, does that give us the license to say, we're doing it 100% right right now? I don't know. I'm proud of what we're doing. But if we're not doing it right and you're doing something better, I want to steal that. <laughs> I want to do what's right because I care about our people. So you guys have my email. I encourage emails to the people that we have presenting today. I encourage emails to me personally if you'd like to be involved in a more collaborative effort, effort uh, to discuss the health and safety topics and how we can help each other be more safe because our culture isn't doing us any favors. What can we do for our departments and our own people uh, to make us better, healthier, and safer? That's really what it's all about. Um, I don't for a second think that the fire family is dead and that just because with the culture of today's world, we spend more time staring at a phone than sitting at a table and hanging out and having that group talk after dinner or, or during a movie or whatever, there, there just isn't as much of that anymore. Is that wrong? No, it's just different. Does that change in our work environment affect how we process incidents? Possibly. Learn from it. If that's the world, we got to learn from it. The outcome by not dealing with it obviously isn't working for us. It's not working for our health and safety. So now's the time to collaborate. Um, be on the lookout for more information on that same model that we see in other parts of the country because it works. I want to be a part of that, that change. San Diego wants to be a part of that change. There's leaders all around us, regardless of their rank, that want to do the right thing. We've got to come together on this stuff. I hope that you found this valuable. I hope that you got something out of it. And if there's something that's missing, email me and ask me. What did we miss? How can we help? How can we share information? If there's something that you have for any of the uh, presenters, or if you'd like some of the material shared, I'm happy to share anything that I have in regards to behavioral cancer awareness, anything that I have is yours. I can't say that for all of the other presenters because I know there's some, some sensitive material out there uh, in some of the other presentations. But if that's what you want, ask, and, and at least we'll, uh, we'll see if we can't work that out for you. Does anybody have any questions for me? I just wanted to update. I was going to talk to Jeff about this separately, but the biggest thing that the task force is working on um, currently is getting uh, peer support embedded into ROS. So if we have a strike team, if we have a big incident, is uh, peer support is automatically part of that incident. Um, not only just, hey, I want to strike three uh, type team, or strike, th sorry, <laughs> it's been a long day, yeah. <laughs> strike three uh, type team, but we also want peer support, but having it embedded so it's just part of a standard incident, and they're there. They were there after the mudslides and all that, but that's probably the biggest thing that the task force is working on is having it just uh, part of the standard MO every time you guys are out on the strike team. You've got a uh, peer support team set up already there in case there is a line of duty death or an injury or just somebody's having an issue with being gone from their family for three weeks and their wife's going to divorce them at home. So um, anyways, just wanted to let you guys know and check out that uh, website, Healing Our Own, as well. Any other questions? Anything good for the order? Is, it, if, is there something right now that you're doing uh, that is noteworthy, better, something that you'd like to mention to the group? Uh, All right, so I'm Justin Shaw. I work for Corona Fire Department, but I was one of the founding members of the Public Safety Peer Support Association. So I'm representing the fire service interests on that side. Uh, last week, we just held our third annual conference. We had 667 people in the room. We had three countries. We have Canada and now Northern Ireland. A lot of people across the world are doing the same thing. A lot of efforts are being duplicated. 
Uh, CalJAC and CPF recognized that last week, and they actually had a meeting on Thursday night with a bunch of leaders in the state to sit down and work with the bar napkins and divide the state up into six OES regions and start getting a game plan. Uh, Brian Rice also spoke at this conference and said that within one year we'll have, a, we'll have a program in the state of California. They're putting everything they have behind it. They're looking for all the collaborators. They're looking for everybody with knowledge in this. They're trying to seek him out. And literally, CPF CalJAC just found PSPSA last week. So a lot of efforts are being made, but a lot of effort has to be made on getting that information out there and putting your information out there and making it available. So it, it's stuff like this that's making the, making the difference. But seek us out, PSPSA.org. Um, next year is going to be a lot bigger, a lot bigger. We had 518 clicks after we sold out, trying to buy tickets to it. So pspsa.org, correct, Public Safety Peer Support Association. And a quick background on it, we formed up after the Inland Regional Center shooting. Um, corona was part of the response to that, and we were all not speaking the same language. We were saying defusing, ATF was thinking debriefing. So we said timeout, let's ICS this. Like she mentioned, it's already gone to fire scope for inclusion in the next fog, in the next fog guide. So everybody's trying to take it to the same level, and there's some people over here doing the same thing that's happening over here. Just get everybody in the same room is the hardest thing, but it's this type of stuff and the meetings that we had last week that's making the difference. So it's happening. Just have to be very vocal about it. Thanks, everyone. If there's anything else, like I said, reach out to me. And thanks for taking time out of your really important schedules to be down here and sharing your day with us. That's all for this episode. I encourage you to go back and listen to the other podcasts in this behavioral health series and to watch the videos. It can be helpful with the PowerPoint slides to follow along with. We hope to bring you more content like this in the future. And if you have any suggestions for future conferences, please reach out to me directly. Until then, take care of each other. We'll talk to you soon.